John, thank you so much for leading us in singing. And thank you for being here and for joining us online. We are now turning to our Bibles. Having sung to the God who made the universe, having communed together, remembering what he did for us, we now have a chance to open his word and allow him to be our teacher. Just a couple of uh, quick comments before we start. Uh, We are going to be in the book of Hebrews And so if you would like to turn to that letter, you're going to find Hebrews in your New Testament. Uh, And for those of you that are new to finding your way or navigating through the Bible, the New Testament is going to be that second part of the Bible, about two-thirds of the way through. And the letter of Hebrews will be almost at the end. So almost there at the end of your Bible, you'll find this book of Hebrews. And if you would, uh, try to find Hebrews chapter 12. And that's where our passage will come from in just a moment. my name is Bob. I am not Tony. Uh, Tony Cloud is our minister here, and he was scheduled today to be down in Homer uh, for a meeting down there. They ended up having to cancel that meeting uh, for other reasons, and so uh, Tony is with us today, but he graciously uh, had asked me to preach today anyway, and graciously said, would you go ahead and, and teach? I love to teach, um, but uh, you need to know that for me, this is a real treat. Uh, to be able to teach. And thank you to the elders who allow me to serve in Tony's stead today. Uh, and as I told Tony in private, but if it's okay if I say, you know, publicly too, uh, this is a small way for me to serve Tony. Uh, what may not be clear to most of you is that the work of a minister is not centered on this pulpit. It is not in just preparing for and presenting two or three messages in a given week. The work of a minister goes so deep and so broad into this congregation and into our community, and that takes time. And so, at least for one week, Tony, thank you for allowing me to uh, be the one to wash your feet and to allow uh, you a moment to take that time and to further minister in our congregation. And thank you for the work that you and Nikki do. Uh, The other comment I have before we jump into this, I didn't prepare for ahead of time, but uh, Russ, uh, thank you for that thoughtful introduction to communion and just that statement that I am tired uh, and then helping us see that we have reason for hope. In fact, the very passage that we read today is going to help answer this question of how do we, as followers of Christ, how can we face what's going on in our world right now without losing heart, without losing hope. That's the very passage that we'll see today. And so the fact that we've been able to sit around a table to think about what Jesus did for us is is such a great preparation for now hearing what God will read, uh, or what we will read from God here from Hebrews chapter, chapter 12. Because I think you all realize that COVID will eventually either become endemic and will just be a part of our lives, but the pandemic side of this will go away. Uh, it will pass. Do you realize that it was two years ago, this very month, that the very first human being on this planet contracted the coronavirus, probably from an animal. Best we can tell, it was transmitted uh, somewhere in the country of China, was transmitted from an animal to a human being. And that was two years ago this month. And you have had a front row seat to how that ends up affecting the whole world. By definition, a pandemic will affect every single one of you. And you have had to say goodbye to people. You know of families who have lost uh, people that they love. 
Some of you have lost jobs, or certainly your job has changed. Many of you have felt the burden of the pandemic on just your life in general. And you've lived through this struggle between fear and faith. It's affected travel, your ability to see others uh, as well. And Russ just put it so well when he said, I am tired. And we have reason to be tired. But you realize that when COVID passes, we're left with the problems that you've seen that the pandemic has highlighted. And that is evil in the hearts of human beings. That will persist. All of the hatred, the discord, the division, the selfish behavior, uh, the harmful behavior, the murderous behavior in some countries that you see is all because of evil in the hearts of people. That's not caused by a virus. The virus simply highlighted that. Well, the question for this morning is, how does God take care of that problem? How does God take care of evil in the hearts of people? And how do you, as a follower of Christ, how do you go forward, run this race without losing heart? Well, let me give you the answer to that, which was written by this writer of Hebrews, and the answer comes from God. So if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and let's just read our passage together. I would like to step out of the way and for just a minute let you hear God's word. What you are about to hear read is some of the most powerful words that you will hear spoken or some of the most powerful words that you will read this entire week. Because if you'll take me out of the way and my comments out of the way, what you're about to hear are the words of God. Receive them for what they are. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. Some of your versions will say, so that you will not grow tired or faint. Isn't that a beautiful message? Let's ask God to come be our teacher. Let's pray. Our Father, we have read your word. We ask now that you come and again teach us the meaning of this passage that you have provided for those who have followed your son from the very beginning, now for thousands of years to this day. Please come and teach us again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage begins with an interesting phrase. It says, uh, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the image that should come to mind there is that you are running a race and you look up in the stands and you're surrounded by this incredible crowd. He calls it a cloud of people. Well, who are the people who are in this cloud of witnesses? Well, to know that, you actually have to turn a page backwards. It's important to remember that the letter of Hebrews is just that. It's a long letter. It goes for several chapters after this chapter 12 and started, of course, 12 chapters earlier, and it's intended to be read as a letter. We don't have time this morning to sit and read it together, but the intent is that you, and I hope this is a little taste test, that you'll go home and read the entire letter, and you'll find that the whole letter is this 
drumbeat encouragement to say, life is hard, and it's about to get harder, but don't give up. That's the point. You are a part of a kingdom, you'll read this towards the end, that cannot be shaken. You've lived through earthquakes, so you know what that's like. You are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the message of Hebrews. Sorry, I got off into talking about Hebrews. But the point is that to find out who this great cloud of witnesses is, you actually have to turn back a chapter to uh, chapter 11. So if you flip a page backwards to, uh, or a page back to chapter 11, you'll see that chapter 11 introduces you to all of these people who are up in the crowd. These people, these men and women of faith. And chapter 11 begins with a definition of faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen for by it, in other words, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. That's what they were commended for. That's what uh, the reason they received their praise is because of their, their faith. Now, don't miss this. When we use the term faith in a modern sense, we tend to use the term faith as a uh, kind of a surrogate word for wishful thinking. Or sometimes we throw in incorrectly the word hope. Or we think of it as a blind leap. Or a belief in something for which we do not have proof. All of those definitions are absolutely wrong. In fact, in many ways, the exact opposite of what the word faith meant when you run into it here in Scripture, written almost 2,000 years ago. In fact, I wish we had a different word because it has changed so much today, but we don't. So I'm left letting you know what this word means. But recognize that the writer of Hebrews gives you the ancient definition of the word faith. Faith is not wishful thinking. It is not a blind leap. It is not uh, accepting something or believing something in spite of the lack of, pr- of proof. Quite the opposite. Faith has two connotations. It is being sure of something, and it is being certain or having a conviction of something. And that's because the ancient definition of faith meant the product of a proof. In other words, the belief that you have not because there was a lack of evidence, but because you've seen the evidence. And because you've seen the evidence, you now hold with conviction that something is true. So to believe something with conviction or to have a firm conviction in the truth of something because of proof, that is what the ancients called as faith. And the writer here reminds us of that. That's the definition of faith. And he says, do you know that's why the men and women who lived thousands of years ago why they were commended, because they had this one quality, this one virtue called faith. And then he lists who those people were. Now, we don't have time to go through all of chapter 11, so I summarize that for you on the slide behind me. But as you read through chapter 11, recognize the names that you come across. Now, for those of you who have read these events, uh, the whole story will come to mind when you hear the name. If it doesn't, then the writer of Hebrews gives you a little snippet of why this person's name is included. And you can actually go back to your Old Testament and read these very, very events. But here's the names that he puts in order. In fact, this ends up being just basically the order of the Old Testament. It is rolled out right there for you. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. You read that, Genesis 1. And then you run into Abel. By faith, Abel. And then the writer says it was by faith that Enoch, and you get to read that story. 
And by faith, Noah, you remember, who built the boat and saved the world. And by faith, Abraham, who was called by God. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses, who, remember, got the Ten Commandments and led people out of the wilderness. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, you learn what she did. Uh, Time, the writer says, would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women, again, by faith, received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. This gets to be a bit PG-13, doesn't it? They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Another way some of your versions will say, the world was not worthy of these people. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That is the list of people of faith. And all of these, all of these people of faith were commended through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made, the word there is perfect, it's the word complete. In other words, their faith would not reach its intended purpose until you showed up. And then we get to chapter 12 where he says, Therefore, since you are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, sin that so closely uh, clings to us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. So you see the image. You are in a race, a run, and up in the crowd, in the stadium around you is this great cloud of witnesses. But don't think for a minute that the people in the crowd are there because they finished the race. These are the people who, by faith, are waiting for you to finish so that their race will be finished as well. These are the people who have gone before who have this quality or this virtue called faith. And that's what they were commended for. Do you realize that your faith is the one thing that you possess with which you can turn the head of God. It is the only thing that you possess with which you can stop the living God in his tracks and turn and say, who did that? This list of people that I gave you are the people that you read about in the Old Testament. If you turn over into the New Testament, you begin to see that the story continues. In fact, let's look at a few of those. Jesus says many times, in fact, this is a drumbeat through those early Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You'll hear this phrase over and over where Jesus will turn to somebody and say, your faith has saved you. The word saved there means to be made right again. It's not just the idea of rescue, it's the idea of restoration. Your faith has restored you. Jesus is not saying there that your faith is what did the work. 
He's saying that your faith was that tiny little seed from which the whole mountain gets moved. And he'll say that over and over. Now, sometimes it will be translated in your Bible as your faith has saved you. Sometimes it will be translated as your faith has made you well. But in the original, it's the same word. Your faith has made things right again. Let me give you a few of those examples. Totally admit I cherry-picked these because there's so many, but I wanted to at least give you a sample. So we're going to jump around. Uh, in my family, we call this the uh, the scriptural scavenger hunt, <laughs> where we say, okay, go find some examples of this and present it. But I wanted to show you I wanted to show you how God responds to your faith and just how powerful it is. The first story there comes from uh, Luke chapter 7. This is the story where uh, Jesus is at a dinner. He's been invited to dinner by a gentleman named Simon. Simon is a, F- a Pharisee, and he's hosting this meal. Lots of people are there at the meal, and they're all reclining at the table. Well, while they're reclining at the table, and remember in that day and time, it might sound weird. Why were they reclining at a table? Uh, they didn't sit in chairs around the table the way we would. The, the table was actually low, almost you know, on the, f- the floor level. And then they would lay beside the table, maybe on an elbow or something, with their feet stretched out behind them. And then they would share the meal together. It was a very relaxing kind of thing. Dinner was the destination <laughs> you know, to relax with each other. And so they're all reclining at the table. <clears throat> and while they're eating dinner, a woman from town comes in who was known as a sinner. That's all we're told. We're not told what gave, what she did to earn that description. But you, you can imagine the type of things that would be available to a woman in that day and time for which she would be called a sinner. She walks in. And you can imagine as she walks into that room, it would have caused a little, a little disturbance. A room full of Pharisees and others who had gathered for dinner. And she makes her way to the back of Jesus. And starts standing there behind Jesus. She starts weeping. And she starts weeping so much that her tears, as they fall, they fall onto his feet. And they start to wet his feet. And then she kneels down right there, falls right there at his feet. And then takes her hair, lets it down, and starts using her hair to wash off and dry off his feet. And then she pulls out this jar of ointment. And she starts to anoint his feet with that oil. And then she starts kissing his feet. All of this right there in the middle of dinner. Well, you can imagine what happened. I mean, the, the room falls quiet or into that quiet murmuring because they all wonder, doesn't Jesus know who this is? Jesus knows what they're thinking, hears the murmuring, and he looks to the host, Simon, and he says, Simon, I have a question for you. If you had two people who were forgiven of a huge debt, one of them who owed about a month's worth of their wages, so whatever you would make in a month or a month and a half, that's how much he owed. The other person owed what you would make in, say, a year or maybe a year and a half. You've got two people. Both of them are forgiven of their debts. Which one do you think is going to show more love towards the one who forgave them? And Simon answered correctly. He said, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, this woman came in and has anointed my feet with her tears. I walked in tonight, and you did not wash my feet. But she hasn't stopped from the time she came in, wetting my feet with her tears. You gave me no oil for my head, yet she's anointed me with expensive perfume. Simon, when I walked in tonight, you didn't even greet me with a kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. And she said, whoever, or Jesus says, whoever has been forgiven much loves much. And then he turns to the woman 
And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And then he gives the phrase, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. The word go in peace is that word shalom. What is it that impressed Jesus? Do you see that it was her faith? This tiny little seed from which the whole mountain got moved. Well, that's just one example. You see many others. There's this story that's actually recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where you have several blind men. One of them we know is Bartimaeus. We don't know the names of the others. Uh, but they hear, because they can't see, they hear that Jesus is coming by. So they start yelling out, Jesus, have mercy on us. And so Jesus, you know, they tell them, be quiet, go away. <clears throat> but Jesus says, no, bring them here. And Jesus asks them, what is it you want done? Please, they say, give us our sight. And in at least one of those accounts, Jesus looks at them and says, do you believe I can do this? The word belief is the same word as faith. It has the same root word. So what he's saying is, do you have faith that I can do this? And they said, yes, we do. And Jesus, impressed by their faith, says, then it will be done for you. And they were healed so that they could see again. And then again, you see that phrase in each of those stories. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. And then there's the story of the centurion in Capernaum here in Matthew chapter 8. Remember, a centurion is a Roman soldier. It's not a Jewish individual. A Roman soldier comes up to Jesus and says, I have an employee or I have a servant who works for me who is paralyzed. Would you come heal him? And Jesus, seeing that faith, stands up and says, yes, let's go now. And the centurion stops him and says, oh, no. He said, I'm a man of authority. I have people who give me orders. I follow them. I have people under me to whom I give orders and they follow them. I know how this works. You say the word, and it will be done. And Jesus says, whoa, I haven't seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. Go, it will be done. And they say at that very moment, the paralyzed man was healed. And then you have the Canaanite woman, this beautiful story where Jesus has left the central part of Israel and gone up to Tyre and Sidon. This was an area where there were non-Jewish settlements, that their ancestry went back to the Canaanites. You might remember Goliath, you know, and the the story of the Canaanites who lived in that area. These were descendants of the Canaanites. And oftentimes, the Jews hated that group so much that they called them dogs. And and they, they wanted nothing to do with them. And even under the Jewish law, if you ate in the house with one of these Gentiles, then you became unclean. If you touched one of these Gentiles, you would become unclean. So Jesus goes intentionally, takes the disciples into this region, and they're sitting there at a meal again together, and a woman comes in who's a Canaanite. And she keeps crying out, saying, Please, my daughter is oppressed by a demon. Heal her. And the disciples say, Be quiet. Stay away. He is not here for you. And then she comes in, and even Jesus says something that when you read this story, it may even offend you. Because Jesus looks at her, and he asks, Is it right for me, who was sent to the children of Israel, to do this for you? And the way he asks it, he says, Is it right for me to take the food that belongs to the children and give it to the dogs? Now, what you won't see in most of your translations is that though the Jews called the Gentiles dogs, which sounds very racist, very sexist, and that can come across that way in this phrase, 
what Jesus actually said, almost with a wink, was, is it right for me to give food intended for the children and give it to the puppies? He uses a different word for dogs. It actually means the family endearing pet. Is it right for me to take that food and give it to the puppies? And with that, it's almost like Jesus took this little baseball of faith and he put it up on the tee for and he stood back and said, impress me. And do you know that woman knocked it out of the park? <laughs> she, she looked back at him and said, yes, Lord, but even the puppies get the crumbs that fall from the table. And do you know what Jesus says next? In Greek, it's recorded as him saying, Oh, woman. And it's meant to come across about that way. Oh, woman. And then in, in the Greek, it's recorded as, Your faith is mega. <laughs> Great is your faith. And he turns to the others and he says, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And then he turns back to her and says, It will be for you. In other words, it will come into existence as you have wished or willed. And he heals the woman. What is it that impressed Jesus? It was her faith. Then there's the friends of the paralyzed man. Sorry, I get too deep into these stories, but they're exciting to hear. Where there's the group of friends who have a paralyzed friend. And they want to see Jesus. They want to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Jesus is teaching in a house. The house is full. They can't get through the crowd to get to Jesus. And so they dig a hole through the tiles in the roof. And they lift the tiles and then lower the man down in front of Jesus. And in each of these accounts that you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in each of those accounts we're told that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Now you, just like everybody else would say, that's not why they brought him. (laughs) They were interested in you healing him. But do you see how Jesus saw through the problem that you may have seen first and saw this man's real problem. Jesus went straight to the heart and healed what really burdened this man, what really made him tired, what really oppressed him. And he said, your sins are forgiven. It caused a bit of an uproar. People said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus said, excellent point. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Which one of those is easier for God to do? It's a trick question because for God, both are pretty easy. (laughs) And so Jesus says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. And the man stood up and walked. Well, what is it that impressed Jesus? We're told in each account is when he saw their faith. And then the final story I put here is just, uh, if you want to write this down again, in Mark, Luke, Matthew, you see it all. The woman who had the dysfunctional uterine bleeding. She had been bleeding for 12 years, had been to the doctors, nobody could heal her. She was weak, she was anemic. Imagine this ghostly, pale woman pushing her way through a crowd. Jesus had been asked to come and heal a young girl who was about to die. He'll end up raising her from the dead. But as they're going along in this huge crowd of people, this anemic, sickly, weak woman pushes her way through the crowd because she thinks, if I just touch his garment, then I will be healed. Well, somehow she she does it. She pushes her way through the crowd. She reaches out and touches his garment. 
And do you know what Jesus does the moment she touches his garment? He heals her. As soon as she touches it, she is healed. The bleeding stops and she feels in her body she is strong. But do you know what Jesus does? (laughs) He stops. And he turns to the disciples and he says, Who touched me? Now that's a funny statement, and it should be, because he's in a crowd of people. Who touched me? And they point it out to him. You're in a crowd, you know. And you say, Who touched me? But Jesus says, No. I felt something. It's kind of like, have you uh, been sitting around the table and somebody says, hey, do you feel that? It's an earthquake. And you say, no, I didn't, I didn't feel anything. And so everybody pulls out their phones and checks and says, yeah, look, it was a 3.2, 10 miles away, you know. And you go, wow, that person really has a, you know, Richter scale built in. they <laughs> able to sense that. That's what it was like. Jesus stops and says, do you guys feel that? And the disciples are saying, no, we didn't feel a thing. And he says, no, I felt it. And he turns and he sees the woman. And she's on her knees and he has her stand up. And he says to her, the same phrase again, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Or it's probably translated, your faith has made you well. What was it that stopped the living God in his tracks? It was her faith. And you need to see that. The one thing from which the entire mountains got moved started with a person's faith. Well, that brings us back to our passage where we're told that you, in the same way, surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, you can lay aside every weight and the sin which so closely grabs you. What burdens you today? What is the, what is the sin that clings to you? The writer of Hebrews says, lay it down. For just a moment, set it aside to run this race And now look what he says next in verse 2, looking to Jesus. The founder, some of your versions will say the author, the one who started it, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The one who started it and the one who takes it to its fullest intended meaning. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now I want to pause here because I want you to see this and I want to make sure this point comes across very clear. You are asked to put your faith in something, to put your firm conviction and assurance in something. What is that? Well, quickly, let's say what it's not. Are you being asked to put your faith in yourself? There's a tendency for us to act as if that were the truth. As if, if I get life together, then Jesus will be impressed. Then God will make things right again for me. If I can get this sin out of my life, if I can get this in order, if I can get rid of this burden, then he will be impressed. Now, Jesus dismisses that, remember, in the Sermon on the Mount. When at the end, he says, there'll be many on that day who come in and say, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do these great works in your name? And he'll say, excuse me, depart from me. I never knew you. Get that clear in your head that Jesus is not impressed by what a person is able to do. He made the entire universe. He sustains it with the word of his power. According to an earlier verse here you read in Hebrews, he's not impressed with the little things that we can do. 
but you lift up your eyes in faith and that whole universe will stop for him to pay attention to your prayer. Your faith is not being, we're not asking, you are not being asked to place your faith in yourself. You're being asked to put your faith in Jesus. Are you being asked to put your faith in an organization? It may seem at times that you're being invited to join an organization. And church oftentimes drifts. In fact, throughout history, church will drift to looking an awful lot like the organizations in the times in which that particular congregation exists. I have a friend who's a professor of theology and Bible, and he says, you know, most churches will drift to take on one of four different models in a modern era. No, five. Let's see if I can remember these. He says your church will either start to look a lot like a business in which you'll have a board of directors and you make business decisions and make strategic plans and set budgets and so forth. We call them different names. You know, we have different names for each of these things. But it starts to look an awful lot like a business. He said, or your church will come to look an awful lot like a school. You'll have rooms, you'll have a curriculum, you'll have teachers, and it will function very much like an educational institution. Or it will look very much like a charitable organization where, again, you collect monies from lots of different people and then figure out ways of getting that money out, and it's all tax-exempt, and you make sure that all the forms are filled out properly and that uh, you know people get the uh, forms that they need to fill out their taxes at the end of the year. But it just takes on, the church takes on more of that view of a charitable organization. Or it starts to look an awful lot like a community center, where you may have a large building where there are all kinds of functions that happen during the week. Some of them religious, some of them perhaps not, but it's more of a community center. Or... He says it starts to look an awful lot like a theater where you have an auditorium and a stage, maybe even a screen. And the presentation takes on more of what we would call entertainment than a message from the Word of God. Now, none of those things are wrong. And uh, Highfield, my friend, is quick to point out that the church may need to serve that function in the community. And the church very well may take on those forms as it meets the needs of the community. But that's not church. And he says in his book, a church without faith in Jesus Christ is not a church at all. When you're asked to put your faith in something, you're not being asked to put your faith in an organization or any particular form of that organization. You are asked to put your faith in in him, in in Christ. Well, what about a book? I want to be real careful with this. Make sure you don't mishear me. You may think that you're being asked to put your faith in a particular religious book. And it's really tempting to think that because we have such high regard for this book, the Bible. And don't get me wrong, of all the literature ever written down, ever copied, ever translated, this book which is your Bible, is the most powerful, most endearing, uh, most holy document that has ever been produced. But there's a tendency to honor this book and have no idea what the message is and not be able to hear that message. In fact, when I testify in court, you know, they used to be you had to put your hand on the, in the Bible, you know, and say, uh, you know, they'd say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And, you know, you have to have your hand on the Bible. They don't do that anymore. Instead, you just raise your right hand. Who knows where your other hand is? <laughs> and you have to say, do you swear or affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Well, I know what Jesus said. He said, do not swear at all. So I can't say I swear. 
But that's why they put in that extra phrase, do you swear or affirm? Because Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so when they ask if I will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, I say, I so affirm, which is a fancy way of saying yes. (laughs) Where did I get that? It's because I have a profound respect for what I read in this book. But what you hear me saying is not that I worship this book. It's because it gave me the words of Jesus. Jesus taught me that. Uh, Jesus, when talking to the Pharisees, said, You diligently search the scriptures. You'll read this in John 5. You diligently search these scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. Yet these are the scriptures that tell you about me. And you fail to come to me to gain life. Jim Woodruff, who was a teacher at Harding University years ago, in teaching the book of John, he said, You know, a lot of people treat the Bible the way a monkey would treat a telescope. You know how a monkey would treat a telescope if you gave it as a gift? Well, it would be a status symbol, be a prize, maybe a toy. They play with it. Most often they'll beat other monkeys over the head with it, you know. And he said, he said, most of us will drift towards doing that with the Bible. We'll treat it as something special. It'll be a prize, a toy. We'll play with it from time to time. Worse yet, we'll use it to beat somebody else over the head. But the Bible, like a telescope, is meant to be seen through. What you read here is meant to bring something distant up close, and that distant is the good news of how God is making the whole world right again, and that includes you. Don't miss that point. Your faith is not to be in the book. It is to be in the one the book is pointing you to to Jesus. And then finally, similar to that is a creed. You may feel that you're being asked to put your faith in a creed, a series of belief statements. Oftentimes churches will come out with these statements in order to say this church is different than that church. And that can get terribly confusing for for most of us at best, but it's unnecessary. Somebody once said that, you know, any creed that doesn't include the entirety of the word of God is too short. (laughs) And anything that includes something beyond the word of God is too much. The point there is we follow God and not a particular creed. So maybe the question was wrong. I shouldn't have said, in what do you place your faith? The question is, in whom are you being asked to place your faith? In whom? And what does the writer of Hebrews say? Look again there at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. That is whom you are being invited to place your faith in. The one who generated your faith in the first place and the one who will bring it to perfection or its end point. It is him. And the writer of Hebrews says, consider him. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Let me ask you this. Which one of you, if you really knew that Jesus is the one who controls reality, if what John says is true, that it was through him that all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made, if that is true, if it's true that it is in him that we live and move and have our being, if it's true, as you read in an early part of Hebrews, that it is only by his word that the entire universe is upheld, 
if he is the image of the living God, as Paul would write in Colossians, if that is true, which one of you, if the doors were locked, would not dig through one of these walls in order to bring a friend to sit here in front of Jesus? Which one of you, if you knew that Jesus controlled reality, would not push through any crowd of people in order to touch him and allow him to lift the burden, the weight of sin? Which one of you who are employers would not, if you knew what Jesus is able to do, which one of you would not? would waste one moment before going to Jesus and saying, Lord, I know how this works. My employee needs your help. Would you heal him? Which one of you who are parents would not scream out, cry out, until you got audience with him and say, in faith, Lord, just a crumb, just a crumb from your table for my child. Which one of you would pause? I have no way of knowing today what it is that that weighs you down. I don't know the burden that you bear. I don't know for each of you what particular sin entangles you. But I know this, what the writer of Hebrews tells us is true. Today, you can lay aside that burden. Today, you can... Walk away from that sin. But it all starts by placing your faith in Jesus. The invitation is to consider him. Now, I realize there's much more past that. But it all starts with this one little seed from which the whole mountain gets moved. And so for those of you that are considering, maybe for the first time, whether or not any of this is even true or real, I realize these claims are profound. And it is true that extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. The invitation for you is, would you consider him? Consider that evidence. Consider what is written, what is preserved. Would you consider him? For those of you who have come to the point of saying, I'm ready to follow Jesus, you realize that faith is only the little seed. That's the first part. It will be followed by a commitment. There will be baptism, which is a death to yourself, but it doesn't stop just at that death, that baptism. There's a daily death to yourself. There's the forgiveness, not just of your own sins, but learning how to forgive others' sins. There's uh, times of testing that you will go through, and your faith will grow into a whole series of other things, ending in you being a person that looks an awful lot like Jesus, one of God's kids. The point this morning is that it all starts with faith. Would you consider him? And for those of you that have followed Jesus for a long time, I think you hear in this passage a reminder. Having been distracted, having been taking on burdens and sins and other things that chase you your whole life, do you hear the message? Lay it down, put it down, and fix your eyes once again on him. In the midst of everything going on in our world, consider him who endured from people that miss the mark, such hostility against himself, so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted.
Well, if we can pray for you in regard to any of those steps, this is the time to do that. You can share that with the congregation or afterwards find one of our shepherds and our elders to pray with you as well. But let's think on this passage as we now stand and sing.